This is Aspire, Arc Street Public Radio, a content-driven platform broadcasting interviews from our Innovate, Innovate Media, Innovate CSR, and Innovate Under 30 podcast series. Aspire gives public voice to socially conscious and forward-thinking leaders within the nonprofit and for-profit sectors, academia, journalism, and social entrepreneurship. My name is Robert Rim, Managing Editor for Arch Street Press. I'll be your host today. Today our guest is Helen Benedict, novelist, journalist, and professor at Columbia University's Journalism School. Her works have shed light on subject matter that has otherwise been left in the shadows, stories and accounts rarely told of the experiences of women soldiers, injustices of military sexual assault, and the lives of Iraqi refugees. Her strong expository style and thirst for social justice led to her groundbreaking writing about the epidemic of sexual assault of military women serving in the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. Helen's books, as of now six novels and five works of nonfiction, include the most recent publication Sand Queen, set in the Iraq War, The Lonely Soldier, The Private War of Women Serving in Iraq, based on three years of research conducted on women soldiers, The Edge of Eden, Virgin of Amp, How the Press Covers Sex Crimes, Portraits in Print, Recovery, How to Survive Sexual Assault, The Sailor's Wife, A World Like This, Bad Angel, and The Opposite of Love. Helen's writing honing in on the harrowing reality of sexual assault of women in the military inspired the award-winning documentary The Invisible War, featured at Sundance in 2012 and nominated for an Oscar the following year. Her dedication to expose the reality of the U.S. military and justice system, as well as the lack of recognition of these human rights infringements, spurred a landmark and ongoing lawsuit against the Pentagon and Defense Secretaries Rumsfeld and Gates on behalf of both men and women who were sexually assaulted while serving in the military. Helen also reinterpreted her research into a play, The Lonely Soldier Monologues, which has been produced about a dozen times thus far in the United States and will find its way onto London stages in May of 2015. Her articles and essays have appeared in the New York Times Book Review, The Washington Post, The Nation, the Women's Review of Books, and many others. In March of 2007, Salon Magazine published her article about the sexual assault of women in the Iraq War, and for this article she was granted the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism. Helen, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you very much. Tell us about your background and any formative experiences that you may have had that inspired you to become a journalist and catalyzed your desire to ask difficult questions of others and also a society that many people shy away from? Well, it probably started because I'm the daughter of anthropologists and um, I was born and brought up in London, but as a small child we went to live in the islands of Mauritius and the Seychelles um, in the middle of the Indian Ocean, which at the time were very, very poor and disease-ridden um, and very much under the thumb of British imperialism. And it, that may be where I first uh, uh, began to feel horror at injustice and, and was moved by, the, by seeing children with inflated stomachs because they had worms and seeing people with elephantiasis and leprosy and so on. This was in the 1950s and 60s. Um, but my parents were also careful to educate me about the civil rights movement and um, were very inspiring on that. My mother was really taught me a lot about Martin Luther King, even though we were living in London, because my parents were American and cared about such things. Um, <clears throat> and then I moved to America 
for graduate school, um, I had become interested in prison reform. And indeed, my first novel, A World Like This, is set in the prison for girls. Uh, and I continued that work once I had a degree in journalism. And that's what led me to violence against women and, um, and children and also to the subject of rape because I found out that 80% of the girls, the teenage girls in this prison I had spent, I had examined, I spent some time <clears throat> working in, had been raped by relatives. And it just horrified me that they were in prison while, while their assailants were free. So um, I, also then when I was a graduate student, I continued to investigate various stories about rape and quickly learned that um, that the rape itself is only the first in a long line of injustices um, that women experience once they go through this, where they're not believed and blamed by that everyone from sometimes their own families, through the police, through the courts, through the culture at large. So I've returned to that subject on and off throughout my whole career, which is what led me to, to sexual assault in the military. But in between, I've written about a lot of other things. Um, the Lonely Soldier, for example, is a, is a work of nonfiction or, or based on interviews with real women who served in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, you mentioned uh, the, that led you to sexual assault in the military. So how did you make that, that leap, actually, from the injustices that you described literally to the military itself when there's so many other uh, uh, parts of society obviously that suffer from this. Right. Well, let's to go back a bit. So my very my first book was called Recovery How to Survive Sexual Assault um, based on interviews with women survivors and men and of all ages. Um, and my next book was for teenagers about how to protect themselves. Um, and then later on I a third non-fiction book was called Virgin or Vamp, How the Press Covers Sex Crimes, and where I examined some major cases and analyzed the way victims, the circumstances under which victims are blamed. So I had all that background. Um, and then when we invaded Iraq in 2003, I felt as a writer that I really had to engage in this. This was an enormous event, enormous story. Um, I was very worried about what America and Britain, my two countries, were doing. Um, and indeed, the consequences have been totally disastrous. Um, and so I began to follow, in 2004, just a year into the war, I began to follow any soldiers I could find who were coming back to see what they had to say about what was actually going on on the ground in Iraq. Um, because we were not getting satisfactory reports from the American media. Um, so I went to a meeting I found at the Graduate Center, um, the CUNY Graduate Center in New York, and there were about five or six soldiers there, fresh back, freshly back from Iraq. Uh, and there were the men among them, were talking to the very small audience about the real things they had witnessed and seen and their feelings about the war, which was fascinated, but fascinating. But in the back of the room, there were two young men, women standing there. I could tell they were soldiers because of their wonderful 
upright posture and I went up to them and said are you veterans too because nobody was in the audience and nobody was in uniform and one of them said oh yes I was in Iraq for 11 months I was a gunner I was shot at every night but when I talk about it nobody listens and nobody believes me you know why because I'm a female now at that point I knew that um, this was say of 2005 that we were sending that more women had gone to Iraq and f to, to fight and been wounded and killed than all American wars put together since World War II. We had never had such a high percentage of women in the line of fire before. Um, and I also knew, of course, that at that time the Pentagon still banned <coughs> women from ground combat, which had nothing to do with the reality of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan which are essentially guerrilla wars. So I said to her, I'll listen. What's it like being a woman in combat? And she said to me, well, the first thing you've got to understand is that if you're a girl in the military, the guys only let you be one of three things, a bitch, a hoe, or a dyke. <laughs> you're a bitch if you, won't, if, the, if you won't sleep with them. You're a hoe if you've got one boyfriend, and you're a dyke if they don't like you, so you can't win no matter what. And the other young woman said, yeah, that's exactly what it was like for me. And I was shocked, of course. Um, and I was reading about women losing their limbs and having PTSD and being killed. And if they had to, if it was really true that they also had to put up with being treated like this, we had something very wrong going on. So I set out to investigate that and also just to answer my own question, why would women enlist in time of war and what's it like? How do women handle actually being soldiers or Marines and so on in war? Because nobody was writing about that. So um, I spent the next three years interviewing some 40 women who'd served in Iraq and some in Afghanistan, all walks of life, all parts of the country, all different ranks, ages, races, ethnic groups, etc. And um, that's how I put together both my nonfiction book and my play, and it's also the uh, material that informed the novel Sand Queen. Yeah, wow. And you adapted the research you conducted for the nonfiction The Lonely Soldier into, as you described, the fiction novel Sand Queen. The title of this book bears significant weight. Can you explain what the term means and tell us about the book? Yes, yeah, sure. Um, Sand Queen, the meaning of Sand Queen was explained to me by one of the main soldiers in from my nonfiction book. In fact, the very first one I just mentioned who told me about the bitch, ho, and dyke uh, paradigm. Uh, she said Sand Queen's a derogatory term used by male soldiers for a very unattractive female soldier who, beca who is nevertheless sought out by by the men because there's so few women deployed and it goes to her head so she thinks she's gorgeous and uh, and she sleeps around she gets used as a mattress quote unquote and meanwhile ev everyone's laughing at her and putting her down behind her back and calling her ugly and so she's seen as a pathetic loser it's extremely cruel that term horrible way to portray someone um, and so I was struck by that because it, it spoke volumes about the, the kinds of 
pigeonholing that women um, put into in the military that they're always so almost always seen in terms of their sexuality no matter what um, and at the same time the poetry of the phrase sand queen appealed to me so I chose it as my title um, the novel is set at Camp Bucha, which was the biggest prisoner of war, American prisoner of war camp in Iraq, right on the Kuwait border. Um, huge desert um, camp, prison camp, just tents in the sand, surrounded by rolls and rolls of, of razor wire, concertina wire, um, <clears throat> where we were holding thousands of people, which the military has since and the Pentagon has since acknowledged, most of whom were innocently just was sweeping them up left right and center and um, one of the soldiers I interviewed worked as a prison guard and she said that Iraqi women would come every day to the edge of the camp to the checkpoint to try and get news of their men who'd been swept up in the night of their sons and brothers and husbands and so on fathers and so I got the end that sometimes the, they would talk. You would talk back and forth because a lot of are ed educated Iraqis and they all speak some English. And a lot of them speak a lot of English. So that gave me the idea for the plot of Sand Queen, which alternates between the point of view of a young woman, American soldier from a rural town in upstate New York, Kate her name is, and that of a young Iraqi woman a medical student whose father and brother have been swept up in one of the America's, American raids and put in this prison. So the story goes back and forth between their points of view. You know, for years, the, the justice systems in Canada and Britain have maintained that cases of sexual assault in the military be handled outside the military, more specifically by civilian courts, to circumvent biases and conflicts of interest the ones that you've described. And yet the United States justice system doesn't operate this way. Uh, and within the past few years, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has been instrumental in the push to overhaul the military's legal procedures regarding sexual assault. Uh, Helen, what does the United States' current military legal procedure for these cases say about our country as a whole? Um, I think what it says is that the military is still regarded too much as sacred and I think that's dangerous. It's dangerous from the point of view of the civil rights of soldiers and it's dangerous from the point of view of uh, our democracy. It's very hard even as a journalist to really investigate the military. It's a very secretive self-protective society which is true in every country. Same problem in, in the UK. Um, <clears throat> But the result is, I mean, it's kind of extraordinary because the military is almost like a sort of kingdom nestled in the center of our democracy. It has its own justice system and isn't really accountable to anybody but the president. But they seem to be remarkably resistant to any directives from Congress or the president. For example, um, Congress has been telling them to clean up their act about sexual assault for about a decade and it took it takes them years and years and years to make any changes at all and often those changes are just cosmetic things have been improving a bit 
But the argument, I mean, that Gillibrand bill is so important, and I so agree with her. Um, the investigation and prosecution to sexual assault has to be taken out of the military, because the way it is now, basically, the military is investigating itself, which creates all kinds of conflicts of interest. I mean, very often, the person who has to decide whether to investigate the case is either a friend of the assailant or is the assailant. So there's this absurd kind of Kafka-esque nightmare, Kafka-esque, sorry, <laughs> yes. nightmare that, yes. um, <clears throat> that, that happens to when a victim tries to report. Um, so the ca Canada's model is so sensible and we really must follow it if we're going to see justice being done in these cases. Where does the debate stand now? Well, the last I heard, the military is still, the generals are still saying, we do not want this taken out of our hands because it's going to undermine our authority in, in all sorts of other ways. And we want control over our own business. And that argument has won. Um, there's been some improvement. When I wrote my book, if you were raped, whether you're a man or a woman, and a lot of men are raped too, you had to report it to your immediate commander in your unit. Um, and the chances of that commander knowing who your rapist was um, or alleged rapist and trying to protect him was so high that almost no cases went anywhere. So now at least it gets reported further up the chain of command. But there's still, and there's been so many cases showing this, so much protective, protectiveness um, that it seems that the military still very male-dominated is often more willing to protect the accused uh, and lose the victim than the other way around. Is that more of a territorial, small-minded thinking on behalf of the uh, of the military leaders, as opposed to a true ideological belief? Um, I think it's a mix. I, I do think the military believes very strongly that it ought to have complete control over its own business and its own people, because it's by nature. A, the chain of command is so hierarchical and the higher up the more power you have and they and everybody who has a lot of power likes that power and wants to hang on to it so it's partly ideological and it's partly just the reaction to anybody who think of anybody who thinks that power might be taken away from them. I might point out that there is no culture or no institution I should say that, that gives individuals more power over other individuals hmm. than the military. And most assailants are indeed superior in rank to their victims. So they're abusing their power over them. You know, in the military, they have, you have to do absolutely everything that your superior says. You know, he decides when you eat, when you sleep, where you work, when you can call home, if you can go home, if you sleep. When you can talk, when you can't talk, how you stand, where you, you know, everything, complete control. If that person is also assaulting you, where are you going to turn unless there's somebody outside? It's not going to be in that circle that's, that's part of the control. And we obviously, outside of the military, have access to the court system, the justice system, uh, but the military is its own 
uh, cocoon. So there, exactly. re there really is no other uh, resource or no other uh, place where these people uh, can go for, for redress. Which right. is, uh, yeah, which... And they can't even go home from the office. You know, if, you, if you're being harassed in your office work, you can go home at night and tell your friends or your family. But there's no going at home at night when you're in the military. You have to live with the people who are mistreating you day in and day out for months and months and months. So that, and, and you're also on top of it all, all trained to see each other as family. And so uh, studies have shown that when you're abused, sexually abused, the experience is like incest. Because these are the people you've learned to trust, see as family. These are the people who are supposed to watch your back and keep you alive in battle. How are you going to trust somebody to keep you alive in battle if he's raping you back on base? Um, the reason I called my book The Lonely Soldier and my play The Lonely Soldier monologues was because I found it so heartbreaking that women, so many women in the military are denied the camaraderie um, that has always been the solace for male soldiers. The great compensation for the horror they go through is the brotherly bonds that we've heard about. You know, Shakespeare wrote about it. But so many of the women I interviewed said they just felt totally alone. They were more afraid of the men on their own side than of the enemy. This Innovate series features dialogue with some of the most influential advocates for changing our world, from the CEOs and founders of major nonprofits to the directors of cultural and academic institutions. Innovate demonstrates the vital role of empathy as an agent for that change. Innovate and Aspire are produced in partnership with Ashoka, Innovators for the Public, the Kellogg Fellows Leadership Alliance, and the Philadelphia Social Innovations Journal, and presented by Arch Street Press and the Public Radio Exchange. We now return to our Innovate Media interview with managing editor Robert Rim and Helen Benedict, acclaimed writer, professor, and advocate. And what are the consequences, the, the longer-term consequences, Helen, of, of such unparalleled power, unchecked power? Um, you mean politically or you mean on the people who, uh, who are victimized by in, it? In, in both regards. <clears throat> um, well, we pay for the military with our taxes, and therefore it behooves us as a democracy. It's absolutely necessary to keep make sure that the military is behaving properly to its own kind as well as to other people. We don't want them going out and raping and pillaging uh, in, in the countries we occupied, and we don't want them doing the same thing to, the, to their own comrades. They must... You know, we have to make sure that the institution is behaving itself, and I and we have to um, make sure it isn't this independent autocracy that that is untouchable because it's dangerous. The, you know, everybody in the military is trained to kill, and they have all these weapons. I mean, just <laughs> we have to control them. So um, that's the political side of it. 
are inside. I mean, actually, when you enlist, you sign away your civil rights. So, for example, supposing you get a leg wounded and you go in for to the military hospital and they take off the wrong leg, you can't sue them. Um, <clears throat> so you're already taking it. You do choose to do that, although how many people are really aware that they've signed away their civil rights and read the small print on the contract? I don't know. I would say that relatively <laughs> few people are aware of that, certainly outside of the military. Yeah. So... Um, Again, if you're going to ask people to make that much sacrifice, never mind actually the sacrifice of going to war, let us please also make sure that they're treated with respect. And is the prescription for this uh, literally to uh, invest in civilian courts, the power of oversight? I think so. Um, I think every, everybody in the military should have access to a counselor right away who's neutral and um, to a, a resource to be able to report a rape or an assault or harassment or bullying uh, where they will be safe and where they can choose themselves whether to do it by name or not and where an investigation can happen without them being pinpointed and therefore at risk of retaliation, which is a big problem in the military too. Yeah, and even if soldiers do report that they've been sexually assaulted, relief from the emotional and the physical pain of the incidents is surely not guaranteed. Can you tell us more about what kinds of retaliation and intimidation these victims face? Well, I've come across everything from being ostracized, being blamed, um, nobody will speak to you, <coughs> um, to being transferred, to being given jobs that actually put you in more danger, like going out to remote parts of a base or something to clean the latrines. Um, I've heard of cases of women being moved to, into units or made to march with, with their assailants, so their assailants see them more often and are there all the time in front of their eyes. Um, and I've heard there was one case that I, I interviewed these the, um, the woman this happened to and her mother. Um, she had been repeatedly raped by her sergeant in Iraq. She came home for for R&R um, &R and she was all set to go back after it was over, but she said she could not face redeploying with this same sergeant who would just start up the abuse again. So she didn't go. They arrested her for, the army arrested her for desertion and put her through a court martial <clears throat> and put her in prison for a month. They did not follow up any of her reports about the rapes. And then there also have been cases of murder of women who've reported rape turning up dead. And none of these have been, you know, proven to the point where somebody's actually been convicted for it. But there have been enough cases where the evidence looks very, very suspicious. Um, there's one family, uh, the woman was called Lavina Johnson. The father was in the army himself. And they are convinced that she died because um, she had reported a rape. She was burned to death and shot and the army claims it was suicide mm. so um it sounds like what's happening in russia now with the uh 
the fellow who was against Putin, and yes. uh, he, he gets uh, he gets killed right next to the Kremlin, and and uh, Sof, yes. yeah, and presumably they will do an investigation, and uh, who knows what will come of that. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's really rather frightening to see that in our own military. You know, with the rise of social media and and uh, obviously the the ongoing efforts of the press, um, do you see any increase in transparency as far as the reporting and awareness of these events, or is it just as it always was? No, I think it's gotten better. Um, after my book came out, I was on the lecture circuit for a while. <clears throat> and I was mostly dealing with people telling me that I was lying and that this all couldn't be true. Um, and then I met this marvelous lawyer called Susan Burke, and she she called me up. She read my book, and she said, I have an idea. Your book gave me an idea of how to create the class action suit against the Pentagon and that you mentioned in the introduction. And at the same time, Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, documentary makers, called me up and said, we've read your article and we want to do a documentary based on your work. So I told them about each other and the lawsuit gave the filmmakers a kind of plot. Once The Invisible War came out and it was seen on Capitol Hill and it was played on PBS, that brought much more attention to the, public, uh, uh, to the wider public than my book could. Um, <clears throat> or did, uh, it was not widely enough reviewed. I think I was a little too ahead of the curve, actually. <laughs> People weren't ready for it yet. Um, and since then, there have been quite a lot of reforms, and the reporting does look as if it's gone up, and it does look as if it's a little easier now, and there's a little more air to talk about all this. Um, so I do see some improvement. Mm -hmm. And do you, in your experience, do you see genuine improvement from military leaders as opposed to just what they're forced to do by, uh, by say, Congress or the press? I think uh, they've always been a mix. They've always been leaders who genuinely care about this and genuinely want it to stop. And then there are a lot um, who are just interested in covering up and always making the military and their buddies look as good as possible. And I think a lot of those people are still in charge and we have to wait for them to retire and move on and, you know, and the, for the culture to sort of go into a newer, more aware generation. Because the trouble is, you know, laws and punishment are one thing, but... Uh, of course, this misogyny is deep in the culture. It's deep in our culture, too. But the military is the most machismo of all institutions. And women are still, um, are still a minority, and they're still largely regarded as sexual prey uh, or as second-class soldiers or both. And, and they're resented, and they're mocked, and they're chased, and they're persecuted. And that goes very deep. So the change needs to come not only from the top down, but from the bottom up. In, uh, in the Hollywood film, A Few Good Men, uh, did you see that movie? I can't remember if I've seen that one. It was with Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, Demi Moore. And uh, Jack Nicholson was uh, one of the key leaders of the military. And what you described is literally what we saw on the uh, on the screen, and I was going to ask you if oh. if that was in fact 
an accurate portrayal, which you're not able to answer because you haven't no. seen the film. I've seen dozens <laughs> of war yeah. films, but yeah. I think that one passed me by, even though I've heard of it. Of course, it's famous. But yeah, it was. It was. Yeah. It was quite a, a revealing uh, portrayal, and uh, outs those of us outside of the military, we'd love to think that uh, it was uh, Hollywood's take on it, but from what you've described, it was uh, really a fairly accurate portrayal. Um, going back to the classroom now, uh, what lessons, Helen, cultivated by years of research and composing really compelling stories that expose the indelible accounts of sexual assault in the military, uh, do you place the most import on for your students at Columbia University? Well, I really care about two main things for them. One is that they have a burning passion for social justice, which I think journalists should have. Um, and the other is that they really know how to write well, um, whether whatever the form will be, even if they're writing for radio or for TV or, or for something like BuzzFeed, which is its own kind of writing, these online magazines. But still, grammar, uh, the correct use of, of words so that you can be eloquent and clear and engaging. And I'm afraid that skill is getting more and more lost. Um, and that's, I've been very alarmed to see the deterioration of, of basic writing skills, even in my really most marvelous sort of top of the top students. The social justice, um, I don't see eroding. And one of the things I really love about the students we get at the Columbia Journalism School is how passionate a lot of them are. And another thing is, because I've sometimes taught fiction classes and here and there and other places, I think there's really something special about journalism students, which is that they're the opposite of narcissists. They go into journalism because they're interested in other people's lives, how the world works. They're interested in looking outward not inward all the time, not writing about me, me, me all the time. And that's just delightful. You know, we can easily ascribe the deterioration of writing skills over the internet because everybody can have a forum and uh, all you need is, is a computer and an internet connection uh, and the education of a cockroach basically to write whatever you'd like. Uh, <laughs> but, but it surprises me when you um, talk about the, literally the writing skills within uh, students at Columbia University, uh, which is obviously a top university in the world. So if, if writing skills are lacking at that level, which is, is such a high level itself, or presumably so, uh, what can be done to, to address this so that even before they get to gra uh, uh, college or undergraduate school, that they in fact have basic and, and hopefully developing writing skills? Well, I think the key, which in how to enforce this, I have no idea, is, um, is reading. And I, I think what um, we may be seeing is generations who read less and less. And by reading, I don't mean skimming a million different things at once, hopping about and, you know, and reading bad writing on the internet. I mean reading good writing in long form so that they get a sense of the rhythm of language and the rhythm of argument and how to make an argument and how to make a story and how to make a narrative. Um, 
if you don't read from an early age, you don't absorb a natural sense of language. And that's, I think, the root of the whole problem. Um, <clears throat> but it's also that grammar isn't taught very well and isn't taught much anymore. I've taken, I don't blame my students when they can't do this, it's not their fault. Um, so I've taken to asking them how many would, of you were taught uh, grammar in school. And the ones that put up their hands are usually our foreign students. Mm. The Americans seem to get taught the least grammar. Uh, it, it does, you know, some of them who come from really good schools will, but a lot of people who come from um, ordinary schools or, or, you know, the kind of post-Reagan public schools that have lost so much money, had so much money stripped away from them, don't seem to be learning it. But teaching grammar isn't enough if somebody doesn't read. It's like, if you, how are you supposed to understand music if you've never listened to music? Sure. Um, so I, I find that distressing and I, I get students who come and say they want to be a great writer like Joan Didion but they've never read so you can't just be a great writer if you've never read and but, are, student, are students aware that this lack of, of uh, skill in writing directly impacts their career how far they can get uh, the assignments that they receive the visibility that they they get and their uh, just their overall ability to be able to pursue their profession. Do they truly realize this? I think some don't, and some do. I mean, I have a lot of students who will say, I know my writing needs to be better, please help me. They've, most students will do that. They're very good at being open to learning and, and, and admitting their weaknesses, which I also find very wonderful. But some really don't understand it, or they think they're good and they're not because they've gone through the kinds of schools where the teachers just tell them they're good no matter what they do, which is very common in education. I pat you on the head and say, yes, yes, you're wonderful. So it's a shock to them. And I'm really rather a hard taskmaster about this stuff, so quite a few of them will be very shocked to find out that they may have been the star of their high school English class, but actually they don't even use prepositions correctly. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel that the, the buck has to stop with me. I mean, this is graduate school. Most of them will never be in a classroom again after they graduate. I tell them that. This is your last chance. Use every second to learn, learn, learn. This is, you will never find anybody with as much time to give you feedback about writing as you will have right here with me. So, but you have to work really hard at it. I can't do it for you. And if, if Helen Benedict is a harsh <coughs> taskmaster, think of when they get to the New York Times. <laughs> well, they won't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> they won't unless they're good. You yeah. Know? yeah. 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 Uh, what do you feel your students walk away with uh, thanks to your teaching style, uh, your beliefs, your approach to journalism? Well, I can't really separate what I think they walk away with from what I hope they walk away with. <laughs> Understood. Um, but uh, I want them to walk away with excitement and passion for the long form, which is what I teach mostly, is sort of the long form writing that you will see in certain kinds of magazines um, <clears throat> and books, with a love of language 
and with a love of going out there and digging around uh, for stories, talking to real people face to face, not doing it all from the desk, not gathering everything just from other people's stories, but doing original stories. And and I see that happening because I'm excited about it. And my classes, I usually have a very good feeling of everybody's excited. Um, I want to make sure that they love the stories they're doing. So I tell them, if you're bored by the story, then I'll be bored by it, and so will any other readers you have. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and I have been told quite a lot, or we'll see in the evaluations, that they feel they've learned a lot about writing. So that's good. And are you optimistic uh, about journalism today in light of the Internet, all of the distractions, uh, the lack of, of good writing growing up and in education in general? I'm not optimistic about long-form and in-depth journalism. Um, but I have been fascinated to see the huge explosion of sites like BuzzFeed and Vice, um, for example, or Policy Mike hiring masses of people, opening offices all over the world. And although, yes, a lot of them have fluffy stuff, they usually they have a serious side to them too, and they have enough original reporting where they're, they'll get picked up quite a lot by NPR or The Times, quoting a BuzzFeed reporter who got to the story first. So it seems to me that, and this is so new, this is really only about two years old, there's a new kind of journalism that's exploding, but it is very much written for the you know, for the short attention span. Uh, just every paragraph is more like a picture caption, and then there's a picture between every paragraph. So the building up of narrative it, it isn't really happening. It's more like a series of bulletins. <clears throat> and so I am a little worried about... Um, you know, the in-depth, uh, long flow of narrative that you need to understand more, more comp complicated stories. And most, most really important stories are actually very complicated. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> um, circling back to the military, uh, I'll ask you the same question that I asked about journalism itself. Uh, are you optimistic about the direction that the military is taking as far as uh, transparency and uh, uh, self-governance and, uh, and and ultimately justice for these things. Hmm. Um, it's difficult to say. I I think right now we're in a very good phase because there's there's this huge explosion of attention being paid about two sexual assault on campuses in the military, you know, as a, in England where I'm living right now for on my sabbatical, there's a lot of stuff coming out about child abuse that's been covered up for years. So there's a new spotlight being shone and more justice being done in that way. But I think the military will always retrench, and the only way it will improve is if we keep shining the spotlight and we keep pushing and pushing for it to improve. And there's an inherent contradiction in all this, which too, which is the military is a violent organization. It's about killing. So um, 
there's only so far we can go to try and teach to be not violent. And, you know, we're saying you can kill, but you can't rape. Um, and given that, you know, a lot of people join the military because they want to be violent, they're attracted to violence, they suit violence, uh, I don't know if we're going to change the behavior of those people much. Not everyone in the military is like that, but, you know, a lot are. It's a voluntary force now, and who are the people who join? And, you know, they're, very, they're not peaceniks. And yet, isn't um, one of the primary, if not the primary, purpose of the military peace rather than violence? Uh, well, um, <laughs> history doesn't really bear that out very well. So, <laughs> yeah. oh, maybe maybe, that, was a, maybe that was a hopeful question more than anything else. I mean, they don't, you know, we've got peacekeepers, we've got the U UN, but the, we, send, we, don't, we send in the military to fight other violence with violence. Uh, and maybe the goal in the end is to make some kind of peace, but um, it's uh, so far all we've done is in in the last few years since the last decade is make things worse. Yeah. Well, these are crucial issues. Uh, the best way to reach Helen and to find out more about her work is by visiting her website helenbenedict.com. Click on the links above this podcast for further details. Helen, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today. Our library of interviews and a range of further resources may be found at archstreetpress.org or prx.org.